So in the Marshall House, we have four types of soap. Right? There's the stuff by the kitchen sink. Right now, it is juniper scented. I don't know what that means, but apparently that's important. There's the soap under the kitchen sink. It's in a blue bottle, and it only comes out when I burn the eggs. There's the stuff in the shower, and it's in a bottle. Ours is red. I don't know if that's yours. But then there's my favorite soap. This is the orange hand cleaner in the garage. This stuff lives in the garage. It does not smell like juniper. It smells like manly accomplishment and satisfaction. Okay, sometimes it smells like childish frustration, but we'll go with manly accomplishment for now. The handle, of course there's a handle because I bought the half-gallon size. The handle is smeared with oil stains, stories of past conquests over a stubborn oil filter or uncooperative lug nut. If soap played football, orange hand cleaner is the middle linebacker. Do you ever notice how obsessed with cleanliness we are? Not just our heads, hands, or our hair, but the stuff that's inside, the stuff that we try to hide. Self-help books are an $800 million a year industry with market research speculating that's going to grow 6% this next year. Personal life coaching is the second fastest growing industry worldwide with $1.6 billion last year in the U.S. Weight management programs, almost $5 billion piece of the self-improvement pie, pun intended. And the top 10 motivational writers and speakers made $200 million last year. That's an average of $20 million apiece. But here's the nagging question, like soap for our hands or books for our souls, are we really that much better off? No, maybe not. It's not really hard to understand, is it? Even though the bookshelves are full, the world is still empty. Even though you can Google a quick search for anything, the world is still profoundly broken. And even though we find a way to deal with it, we are just as vulnerable to pain as we ever were. Like an obscure people in an obscure corner of the world 2,500 years ago, it soon seems that we are e eager to find the solution for the pain, but not for the problem that causes it. Today marks the third week in a four-week series of Haggai, and so if you've been tracking with you, pat, pat yourself on the back, because Haggai is a rough one to stick around for. The first week we looked at Haggai's first speech in chapter 1, and it's all about priorities. And what we said was, if you neglect what God deems to be important, you can expect to be frustrated. It was the first week. Last week we took a look at Haggai's second speech, and it's not about priorities, it's about perspective. And we said that God's presence, power, and plan help us keep our perspective right when we feel discouraged. And this week is not about priorities or perspective, it's actually all about perfection. You remember last week we ended with a bit of a cliffhanger. We said if God's people are working hard as we move toward what God calls us to do, what's the standard for doing what God asks us to do? And so today we're going to look at Haggai's third speech, all about perfection. Three months into their construction project on the temple, God tells his people that they need to be perfect, holy, 
righteous. This is his third speech. For us, 2,500 years later, here's what this means. God does not want you to behave. He wants you to be new. So it's been exactly three months since the people began the work on the temple. That's week one. Two months since Haggai's last speech to them in the face of discouragement. And now Haggai comes with some pretty interesting language. I don't know if you caught it in the video or if you're already in Haggai chapter 2. Take a look in verse 10. Just glance at some of this language that's here. This is some really weird stuff. A few quick warnings about Haggai's third speech before we dive in. First off, it's the weirdest of all four of these. There's some really strange stuff going on here. Second thing, it's the harshest. Despite all the good work that God's people have been doing on the temple, this is the most negative message out of the four. But third thing, it's also where God is at his most raw. He openly grieves and he widely blesses. I think you're going to love what you see from God here in this little speech. So this text talks about God's law You can see that in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. We'll look at it closely in just a minute, but a few things before we get into it, because this is going to kind of set the stage a little bit. First thing, when God's people left Egypt, he gave them his law. Yes, this is Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, but there are more than that. There are 613 laws that God gave his people when they left Egypt and moved into the promised land. 613 of them. Okay, so second thing I want you to know about this law business, out of those 613 of them, a good number, depending upon what Hebrew scholar you talk to, talk about ritual cleanliness. Why? Because God wanted his people to be different than the tribes around them. So things like what to eat, what not to eat, what to touch, what not to touch, when to eat, when to go to sleep on the Sabbath, all of this stuff. Third thing you need to know about this law, the priests were the ones that were responsible for passing this down. Now get this. If you were a priest, you had to memorize the entire thing. Right? They didn't have scrolls. Nebuchadnezzar had burned those in the siege 70 years earlier. And the priests had to memorize all 613 of these laws plus more so that they could carry it on from generation to generation. All they had was their love for and commitment to God's law. Last thing before we get into it. Remember, the people haven't worshipped according to God's law in 70 years. 70 years. Think about what would happen if you didn't worship for 70 years. You're in exile. You don't have a temple. You don't have a tabernacle. You don't have a law. 70 years. Most of these people, this was a foreign concept. But for those who remembered what it was like before the exile, they're really eager to get back to it. So I don't know if you believe that all of the Bible is God's word, and I don't know if you believe that every page has been given to us for our betterment, but I do. So here's a quick little push. If you believe that all of God's word is God-breathed, and you believe that God gave us his word to be useful, then we have an obligation to dig deep. In this case, probably a little deeper than normal. To ask two questions. What is God saying to me? And secondly, what does he want me to do about it? I was talking with Alex this last week, and we kind of came up with this idea that preaching or teaching in these kind of texts is like panning for gold. You sift and you sift and you sift until eventually God shows you what he wants you to see. And that's important because we don't make the Bible relevant. We discover its relevance. 
And that's the art of preaching, separating what's good from what's gold. And I promise you, there is gold in this text. So if you'll track with me for a few minutes, let's mine together. All of that to say, join me in chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. First question. If someone carries holy meat into the, in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Interesting question. You probably haven't been asked that ever. The priest answered and said, no. Second question. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of those, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So this is strange, right? Here we are at a construction site, wood stacked off to the side, some tools laying around, maybe a Gatorade cooler stuffed off to the side. And here comes this 90-year-old prophet talking about food and corpses. Like, I don't know, what is he talking about? Is he the building inspector? Is he saying something about lunch? Is he from OSHA? Like, what is happening here? This is really strange. These are very foreign images to our 2019 ears. So first, a helpful detail. Who does God have Haggai address here? There's a subgroup. Who is it? It's right there in verse 11. The priests. Okay, these guys are the experts in the law, remember? They had it all in their head. So God gives them a little test. Two questions. These two questions are two sides of the same coin. They're very different, but they arrive at the same conclusion. First things first, holy meat. Sounds like Quaker steak and lube to me. So how does this work? If you're a worshiper in the Old Testament, you know that coming to God requires two things. First, an awareness of your personal sin, and then two, a sacrifice to atone for that sin. And so God made a way for his people. He said, if you offer a spotless lamb from your flock, then your sin would be paid for. Here's the idea. For my sin to not be counted against me, something perfect has to take my place. You see what this sets the tone for? More on that in a minute. So you'd go to the temple with your sacrifice. The priest would sacrifice that animal on the altar. And then there's a very practical question that emerges. What do we do with all that meat? Because if all God's people are making all these sacrifices, like should we open up a butcher shop or something? Like what's, what's going on? And so God tells the priests in his law, he says, you know what? When this happens, you can give it back to the worshiper and they can take it home for food. It's God's very practical way of making a concession for his people. So all that to say, this idea of taking meat home in your pocket, that's very foreign to us, but that would have sounded very familiar to them. And as weird as it sounds, it was a reminder of God's thoughtful care as he made atonement for their sin. But here's Haggai's question. If that meat touches anything else, your stew, your oil, your wine, does that stuff become holy? And the priests answer, no, it does not. That's the first question. That's the right answer. It's exactly what God said in his law. What's the point? Holiness isn't contagious. It's the same thing for us today. Just because you're around holy places doesn't mean you are holy. Just because you hang out with holy people doesn't mean you are holy. Just because you busy yourself doing holy things, building a temple, coming to church, attending a Bible study, doesn't mean you are holy. Going to church doesn't make you any more of a Christian than sitting in your garage makes you a car. 
Holiness is not contagious. That's the first point. But it gets worse. Here's the second question. And here's what's really, really interesting. Haggai asks another question in verse 13. He says, okay, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of those things, does it become unclean? The priest said, yeah. In that case, it does become unclean. Summary, holiness isn't contagious, but sin is. Haggai is alluding to a really obscure law in the book of Numbers. Okay, now here's the command that God gave his people. Numbers 19.13, Numbers he says, Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, now get this, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. What's his point? God's presence is at stake here. There are 613 laws about how God's people should stay pure. Guess how many of them mention the tabernacle? Just that one. Now that's interesting, but why is it significant? Back up, quiz time from last week. What festival have God's people just got done celebrating? Festival of tabernacles, right? Which is all about God's presence. So what's the lesson? God is always with us, but you gotta take sin seriously. Tucked into this old prophet's little book, referencing an even older ancient text, is a timeless principle that we need to pay attention to. God's presence and human sin are incompatible. So the bad news, holiness isn't contagious. The worst news, sin is. You see how this presents a problem for the people? God doesn't want them to behave. He wants them to be new. So it's fall, and I love chili. Like Sunday afternoon, you put like a big old pot on the stove, right? You give me a bag of Fritos scoops and a pile of cheese. Like I could work through half a bag before halftime. This is like my, my fall food, right? And so imagine something with me. Imagine that you come over for dinner, and we're going to watch a football game or whatever, and Mandy's got this big pot of chili sitting on the stove. And as soon as you walk in the door, you kick off your shoes, you can smell it. It's like heaven just wants to hug you. And so we go over to the kitchen and we say, you know, you think this smells good? Watch this. So like I open up the top and like steam just billows out like love. And you go, oh. And I say, now watch this. Go over to the pot. Anybody having chili for lunch today? I probably owe you a pizza if so. <laughs> What's the problem? Are you going to eat that chili? No, you are not. That's what's going on here. Even though things are going pretty well, there's a fly in the ointment, this thing that's really, really nasty, but it's mixed throughout the whole pot and you can't ignore it. It's called sin and it's a big deal. I want to catapult this into 2019 just so we don't get lost in the dust. Here's another way of asking these questions. Does food served at a soup kitchen from the hands of a man who's addicted to porn, honor God? Do clothes dropped off at a rescue shelter from a woman who lies to her husband? What does God think about that? That guy who's cheating on his wife, when he sings on Sunday morning, how does God feel about that? That woman with bitterness in her heart, when she tithes, does that money count for anything? The student who's living a double life, 
the man who can't deal with his anger, the person who will not open up their hand in forgiveness to their brother. What does God think about worship in the life of someone who is stained by sin? Do you see how this is so much more than just weird laws in ancient texts? You see how these questions set God's people up for a very real tension? I hope you feel it. I do. And then in verse 14, Haggai lays out his real concern. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. This wise old man with a heavy message doesn't interrupt a a crew of construction workers for some abstract theological discussion. He isn't interested in speculating about the complex rules around holy food and defiled food. He's getting at something much deeper, much more significant, and ultimately much more overwhelming. Everything we touch is stained by sin. Now stop for a second. Why is God doing this? Like, it's a little deflating. Like, hey, great work on the temple, guys. You've been going for three months. Thank you for the temple, you sick and filthy, defiled people. Right? Why does God do this? By holding their sin in front of their faces, God is making sure that they view this temple project correctly. Like anything else we do, the temple does not enable relationship Because we do not have a doing problem. We have a being problem. When faced with the reality of our sin, I think there are three common responses. And I want to hit them really quickly and talk about how they intersect the gospel. Because this text is so relevant for 2019. Just so you hear me right, I've been guilty of all three of these at different points. Um, So I'm not exempting myself from this. This is mostly me. Okay, so the first common response to our sin problem is legalism. Legalism. Legalism sees our sin problem as a challenge. And legalism says, okay, so since sin is so contagious, I won't do, say, or touch anything that might get me dirty. You know what? Game on. Well-intentioned never works. Because you hold yourself to an impossibly high standard of behavior that only masks a heart that has never actually changed. And here's what's worse. Legalism always, 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 always turns horizontal. Because when you realize that you can't measure up to this perfect standard you've set for yourself, it creates this enormous pressure inside of you, and you have to give, it has to go somewhere. So where does it go? It goes on everybody else who doesn't measure up either. Legalism poisons relationships because it encourages everyone to ignore God's grace equally. Here's the thing. Legalism makes you look really good. Some of you have tried that. And man, do you look holy. But looking good isn't the problem. Being made good is the issue. And so for the legalist, the gospel is an invitation to freedom. Say, let my inner life match my outer life. Where legalism says, I'll impress God by changing from the outside in, the gospel says, no, I got to change from the inside out. So God, would you change me? Legalism says, all right, I'm going to conquer this thing. I'm going to work to achieve it. The gospel acknowledges that same level of perfection and says, I'm bankrupt. I can't do it. God, would you change me? 
That's the first common response to our sin problem. Second one is license. License. This is like the pendulum from legalism swinging the complete opposite direction. And here's what it sounds like. Since I can't overcome my sin, all is lost. I'm going to give up and I'm going to give in. But people don't talk that way, right? I don't think you do. Here's how we actually say it. It's a slippery slope, okay? And see if you've ever heard this before. Sounds like this. I've been doing really well, so I kind of deserve this right now. Which turns into, no one's going to know. And besides, like, I'm not really hurting anybody anyway. Which turns into, well, God's really gracious, so. And then when license is fully borne out in your life, it sounds like, God can't forgive me. I'm too far gone. So what's the gospel say here? Interesting insight. Legalism eventually devolves into license. How? Because when you can't keep up that impossible standard, you get tired of shifting the blame to everybody else. Eventually, the levy breaks in your life, and things get really, really messy. Life implodes with license. And so the gospel says, look, there is no one too far gone. There is no sin too big. There is no stain that is set too deep for our Jesus. Jesus' arms are long enough and strong enough, and he can reach far enough to pull you back. There's no addiction he can't break. There's no wound he can't heal and no darkness too deep. That's the second common response to our sin problem is license. Here's the third one. I think this one is probably the most popular or most common, and I think it's the most volatile the third common response to our sin problem is brand management. Brand management. Here's what this one sounds like. I have discovered the trick to the Christian experience. I don't have to be new. I just have to behave. This is the closet alcoholic who maneuvers through her Christian life artfully enough to enable her false hope to live while proudly displaying her faith when she needs to. This is the angry man who wrestles mostly with himself over things that could have gone differently. He smiles when he must, but he'd rather punch a hole through a wall, but he won't because he knows that that would embarrass him and he'd be rejected. This is the double life, the hidden self, the cowardly king who projects because he cannot reflect. Here's what you might do if this is you. You surround yourself with people, places, and things that I'll help you to behave because you're not courageous enough to look inside and address the real areas of unbelief. And I'll hit them really quick for you. Okay, there are four areas of unbelief, but this is probably you if you're into brand management Christianity. Like I said, I'm kind of an expert, so here we go. First, first thing, you don't believe that God's good enough, so you look elsewhere for satisfaction. You don't believe that God is great enough, so you try and reach out for control. You don't believe that God is glorious enough, so you fear others. And you don't believe that God is gracious enough, and so you try and prove yourself. Sound familiar? All those areas of unbelief, I know they came really quick. If you want them, text me. I'll shoot them back to you. All of those things are things that you believe, but you'll never say, because if you were to actually vocalize those things, they would kill your Christian brand. And the gospel stands up and says, stop the circus. Give up. Admit it. Without repentance, there can be no remission. Get over yourself and get on to life with Jesus. At the core of personal brand management is the question, are you really letting Jesus change you or are you just getting better at looking that he is? 
here's Jesus' word for you. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain when you exchange your reputation for Jesus. That's the third response to our sin problem is brand management. So before we move on to the text, here's what all three of those miss. Each one makes little of the gospel while making much of me. Where legalist tries to grip on tight and the licentious flings it away, the brand manager tries to hide it and curate it, there is another solution. The bad news is that Haggai's audience is just like us. We can't change us, not in the way we need to be changed. The good news is God is eager to do it all on his own. How eager? Let's keep reading. Look in verse 15. Now then, consider from this day forward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. And when you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. God's calling his people to the rarest form of spiritual posture possible. He's calling them to be thoughtful. Summary of verse 16, if you can imagine your best Dr. Phil voice. How's that working for you? Not good? What do you imagine to be the source of all this? Take a look in verse 17. Here's what God says. I struck you with blight and with mildew and with hail. That blight is actually a specific weather pattern in ancient Israel. It's called the Sirocco, right? I think that's how you say it. It's kind of like this ancient Near Eastern version of El Nino. Do your best not to picture Chris Farley right now. All good? Okay. So here's this giant weather storm that comes across the Arabian Desert. It's this scorching, dry east wind that blows up the Arabian Peninsula and all across Israel. Here's the interesting part. Anytime in the Old Testament you come across east wind or eastward movement, it's almost always tied to God's judgment. When God moves Cain or moves Adam and Eve out of the garden, he moves them east. When Cain, after he kills his brother, wanders into a town, it's east of Eden. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream where he sees an east wind. Translation, famine's coming. In Psalm 55, David compares his troubles to finding shelter from the east wind. And that even extends into the time of the prophets. This image of an east wind, Hosea says God's punishment is an east wind, a blast from the Lord. Ezekiel compares God's favor to a vineyard that an east wind has dried up. Probably most interesting to me is in Isaiah. When Isaiah looks forward to this one day future king that will call Messiah, he says this, a king will reign in righteousness who will be a hiding place from the east wind. File that away for just a bit. What's God want his people to understand? My justice is like this savage east wind that bears down hard, destroys crops, dries up vineyards, and confounds kings. But there's this other thing that we need to see here. There's mildew and hail. This isn't just an east wind. Where's mildew come from? Mildew's not a dry, scorching wind. Mildew is this wet, damp wind. Remember where Israel is. It's like the, the Arabian Peninsula is right over here, and the Mediterranean Sea is right over here. The people are getting hit from both sides. And then there's hail falling from the sky. The last time that happened was in Egypt when Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And God's people are going, ha, ha, ha. God's trying to get something across to his people. One translator puts it like this. I sent dry wind to wither your grain 
damp winds to make it rot, and hail to knock it all down. I came at you from all sides, from your right, from your left, and from above you. Do you ever feel like that? Like just closed door after closed door after closed door. Things are not going the way that you want them to go. It's a terrible feeling. I felt that way. In those times, if you're at all like me, we rush to say, well, you know, God's not really doing this. This is my, you know, these are the circumstances. Or people are treating me badly or da-da-da-da-da. And we rush to acquit God. God wouldn't send trouble into my life, right? He's loving and gracious and he wants me to be happy all the time, right? You ever read Job? (laughs) Joseph's life, right? Jesus' life. In the hands of a loving God, suffering is not the enemy, it's a tool. Don't rush to acquit God of an injustice when he wants to teach you something. God doesn't need our acquittal, he needs our attention. And here's what I notice for me. Whenever God introduces suffering, it's usually because he wants to show me something about himself that I would have otherwise been blind to. In Haggai's case, what's God trying to say? Unless I create the hiding place, unless I do something, there is nothing that you can do to get away from the effect of your sin. Do you see what God's setting up here? He's setting up a scenario where the only hope these people have is his goodness. Unless he acts, unless he moves, unless he fixes, there is no hope for these people. And then he continues. This is what knocks me over. Take a look in the rest of verse 17. I struck you, ba 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 ba. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Nestled there in verse seventeen is the most humanizing thing that God could ever say. He tips his hand and he shows all his cards. He lowers the wall and gets totally vulnerable with his people. He says exactly what he wants and he says it in the clearest way possible. I want your heart. That phrase there, declares, isn't like yells. It's actually translated whispers. That whole phrase is heartbreakingly beautiful in Hebrew. If you read it literally, it says this, yet you, not to me, whispered God. It's the whisper of unrequited love. But God's not done. He has something else he needs to say. Take a look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive have yielded nothing. God's just pointing out the obvious here. They haven't had a good crop in years. There's nothing on the table and there's nothing in the barn. Put practically, you have nothing to enjoy and you have nothing to look forward to. God has brought his people to a place where they have nothing else other than the hope of his blessing and here it comes. But from this day on, I will bless you. Think about how good those words sounded to people who were overwhelmed by the weight of their shortcomings. But from this day on, I will bless you. In giving his blessing, God is renewing a theme that his people have clung to for hundreds of years. To Abraham, right? He says, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. To Isaac, I will be with you and I will bless you and I will give your sons these lands. 
to Moses, I will come to you and I will bless you. Oh, my people, you're working so hard. Let me tell you what I really want. I'm doing something that's going to bring everything you've ever wanted. But I want you to rest in the blessing that I will give you. I want you to hide in my provision. I want you to cling to me and me only. I want so much more than just changed behavior. I want to change heart. And I'll make the first move. God doesn't want you to behave. He wants you to be new. So this little speech started out with two questions and two answers. Is holiness contagious? No. Is sin contagious? Yes. And that's the way the world works. But wouldn't it be incredible if there was somebody who could work those laws backward? Wouldn't it be incredible if there was somebody who could make the unholy holy by a word? Someone who could stop the contagion of sin that we are so easily overcome by. Someone who could touch the unclean and make them clean. Someone who could touch a dead body and raise it to life. Someone who could heal and cure and raise and set free. Wouldn't that be incredible? This blessing points to someone way beyond Haggai's time. And I hope you know him. Let me pray. God, we have nothing to hope in if it weren't for your goodness. We can look for it in every corner of this life, something that will make us feel better, something that will convince us that we're cleaner, that we're actually okay. And God, we just know that that's not the case. And so forgive us for faking it. Forgive us for not taking this seriously. We're not looking at your blessing for what it is. And so, Father, we say thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus who would come, who would fulfill all of this hunger and satisfy all of our longing. We say thank you for Jesus and for Jesus alone. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.